Well, if I were to tell you that you couldn't have one thing for the rest of your life, what is that one thing that you would fight me over? If I were to say, you can't have this, and you would say, no, I will die before I give that up, what would that be? Now, I think history tells us that Sometimes in our minds, we would say, no, I, I believe that. I believe that. But when, when pain and, and frustration comes, we're quickly saying, well, I don't believe it that much. Um, I, I think there's some things like that. Like you can think of like your love for stuff. Like I, I love my truck. I love how blue it is. I love that it's a truck. I love how big it is. I just love my truck. But if, if it's death or my truck, you can have my truck. It's not that big of a deal. Like I love it, but it's, I don't love it that much right? And I think for some of us, we have different things like that. You may like love your kitchen. You may, you may love your books or you may love your computer or something like that. But if it's death or those things, you're like, okay, cool. You take that, <laughs> right? right. Um, deep down, we don't care about that much. But there's other things that we are willing to die for. And I, and I, would, I would hope we would say like our spouses uh, or our kids. I would hope we don't say our phones or something like that. Um, but I want to ask you this, what is a belief that you have that you hold to so deeply, like that you believe in your bones that you are willing to die for? Like you, you, you can think of like William Wallace in Braveheart, you know, when, when he's at that, that last scene and he's shouting, freedom, right? Like he is shouting that because it was something worth dying for. If someone said, recant Jesus or die, what would you do? Like, what, do you believe it so deeply that, that I'm convinced that in life or in death that I'm, that I'm actually belonging to my faithful Savior, no matter what happens to me? And so you, you, can, you can pin me down, you can choke me out, you can cut off my hands, but you're not going to pry that belief away from me because I believe it that deeply. Today, Paul is being threatened with death by this flash mob. Do you actually believe that the gospel is for all people? And we're, we're going to see that the gospel, the gospel and his story and his testimony is what, saved, what, it, what he was saved from and what he saved to and wh who he believes the gospel is for is, is something he believes so deeply that he's willing to die for it, that the gospel is for all people. And so to Paul, this story is so webbed to his identity that it, that it reminds us, it defines us, and it drives us. Today, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 21. We're going to read verses 27 through 40, and then we'll also look at the early part of Acts 22 after that. But would you please stand wherever you're at to honor God's Word uh, and grab your Bibles. We'll be reading from the ESV, uh, English Standard Version, Acts 21, verses 27 through 40. And Jada's going to be reading it here for us. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! 
This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out, to the, out of the temple, and at, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all of Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And they all saw the tribune and the soldiers. They stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came, upon, came up and arrested him and ordered, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came, in, when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed him, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was, brought, was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he, had given them, when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in, Hebrew, in the Hebrew language. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated if you did stand up. We hope you did. Hey, let's pray for this. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, would you give it to us afresh? Lord, we need to hear from you this morning so desperately, wherever we may be, Lord, would you speak to us? Would you, would you remind us that your word, though written 2,000 plus years ago, uh, is very applicable to us here today? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you see that this story, as we said before, it reminds us it defines us, and it drives us. And what we mean by that is that it reminds of where we came from, and it defines who we are today, and it's going to drive us to what we are to be about, what our mission is. And before we get into Paul's defense that, that he has to give before the crowd here, I want us to look at the, the buildup to what we uh, are about to get into, what Jada read. You know, this is Paul's speech, one of his, his three great speeches that he's having to give to defend himself in the, in the end of the book of Acts. It, we're exiting out of Paul's missionary journeys. Uh, that, that ended abruptly. And we're entering into this last couple uh, weeks uh, that we're going to be in the book of Acts. It is his defense of the gospel. And it's, it's his defense of the gospel that is very important for us today and for the next couple remaining chapters that we have here in the book of Acts. And if you remember last week when uh, Mark Toombs preached for us, we were told about James and the elders, and they're giving uh, Paul um, this news that there are, there are some people who are saying you're teaching one thing, and, and those people would not be reading Paul charitably, right? They, they are only reading his writings in, in the most negative light. But, but instead of defending himself, Paul surprisingly listens to the elders 
and says, sure, I'll pay for these four men's haircut, and I'll, I'll, I'll pay for mine as well, and, and I'll undergo this vow, and I will take this vow that's going to take a week long to do. And if you're looking at verse 27, he's now finishing up this week-long purification process. And what happens then here is some people start coming into Jerusalem, and they start stirring up stuff. And we'll call these people Karens, Okay. These Karens start stirring up the crowd. They they seize Paul. They're shouting lies. They're changing their voice and their inflection. And they call the police in verse 28. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law in this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple. Now, they think like others in our society, that they can use their position of privilege to call the authorities on a crime that he didn't commit. They weaponized their privilege. They accused Paul. They didn't even accuse him. They they slandered Paul and said he was doing something he did not do. They said he brought this Gentile Trophimus into the temple and you don't have to, to know a ton about Jewish culture to know that, that the, Jew, the Jews took the, the cleansing of the temple very seriously. And, and you can just see here that the, the Roman guards were willing to execute capital punishment to kill based off of this accusation of this man wandered into the temple who supposedly was a friend of Paul's. And, it, and it, all it took was an accusation. All it took was a cloud of suspicion and the whole city was in uproar and Paul was about to get lynched. Now, in light of this month of Asian Pacific Heritage Month, uh, let me, let me and bring to light another person you may not have heard of before, uh, a man named Vincent Chin. Vincent Chin was, was a Chinese American in 1982 in Detroit who was beaten to death by two white men because they thought he was Japanese. And they thought that the Japanese were ruining the, the, the motor industry. So he was beaten to death, not because of who he was, but because of who they perceived him to be. All it takes is this, per, this, this perception or this presumption of guilt or of, of something here, this cloud of suspicion, and that's all it takes. And it seems that all it takes in history Verse 30, they dragged him from the temple. And verse 31, while they were trying to kill him, the Roman troops intervened at this point. But think about how long it took for that to happen. I mean, there's no cell phone footage. Imagine how long it would have taken for this riot to break out, for them to be hurting and and beating and choking Paul, for that, that news to get to, to the Roman troops before they could step in. And you think of how, how bloodied and hurt he would have been at this point. But they step in to keep order, and the crowd is yelling, get rid of him. Like You just feel the hatred they have for him. Now, as they're about to take Paul into the barracks, uh, notice that they take the prisoner. They take Paul prisoner, not the crowd who's actually doing the hurting, Right? And they're not doing this to save him, but they're doing it so that the the authorities can have an orderly way of punishing and executing Paul. Paul stops the soldiers that he's bound to. He's now bound in two chains between these two soldiers. He stops them and, and he asks them, may I say something to you? 
And I don't know if this is just a stroke of genius or this is the Holy Spirit working through Paul, but he asks them this in Greek. And they're caught off guard that, like, you speak Greek? Verse 38, are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the Assyrians out into the wilderness? So they had thought Paul was this radical leader of this assassin group, the Sicarii. This anti-Roman extremist group, like your video game Assassin's Creed, that, that, that were known for going around and killing people with this small dagger that were responsible for the revolt that, that, that against Rome in, in AD 70. Like, they, they, how shocked would you have been if you're like, that's who you think I am? <laughs> I'm sorry, what? No. Verse 39, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. He's trying to say, I, I know Greek because I grew up speaking Greek. I beg you to permit me to speak to the people. And that was enough for the crowd, for the the guards to let him speak to the crowd. But just think of that scene there. The crowd had just beaten Paul to a pulp. And he's begging the the guards to let him speak to the crowd. And if you can just think of like the chaos and and, and how crazy it would have been for Paul to, to to get everyone there to listen to him. Like, what happens here in verse 40, when he was given permission, Paul stand on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them. And I just, the commentators and everyone else asked the same question. I think it's interesting. What armed movements did Paul have to stop everyone from, from yelling at that moment? Like, I just assume it's something like the Hulk Hogan wave or something, or maybe it's like the annoyed teacher going like, I'll wait. Like, like, what did he do at this point, right? I don't know how, how he got them to be quiet, but they hushed. And then he gives them their testimony. And, and if, you're, if you're jumping to Acts 22 out of context and you're reading about Paul's testimony, you might say, I mean, that is a powerful story of how God redeems his people. And it is. It's a powerful story to hear how God changed and reached Paul. But I think what is so interesting about this testimony is when Paul gives it, like the context in which he gives it. Like when I think of telling my testimony, it's usually in church. (laughs) It's not while people are trying to murder me. Like Paul is telling it that the answer to the charge given against me is that he is teaching another gospel. Remember that, that, that he teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law in this place, which is a dog whistle to say that, you know, we don't want to let this riffraff in here, right? His answer to that is, let me tell you my testimony. It's an interesting time for him to to share his testimony. And so Paul says in chapter 22, verse 1, hear my defense or my apology to you. And they listen to him. And so Paul is about to use every trick he knows in his tool belt to keep their attention. He speaks to them in Hebrew now. He just went from Greek to Hebrew. And he tells them about how the gospel reminds you who you are. Paul says, before all of this, I was one of you. I was one of you. Verse 3, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. 
For from them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. The gospel reminds us who we were. Your past is important. Like, you, you are not your past, but your past is important. Like, history is important. It's part of your story. You may have a very dark story, but it's still part of the story. It's not the whole story. It's not all of it, but it's, it's a few chapters of your story. Now, some of our stories have very dark beginnings of that chapters, and we kind of want to brush past that, but, but we need to keep those chapters in the story because they describe who you are here today. You are not your past, but your past is important. Let me say it again just so we're all clear. You are not your past, but your past is important. Don't forget from where you came from. And, and if I look back at my life before Jesus, ooh, ooh, <laughs> I was a mess. <laughs> I was a train wreck. Kids, don't listen. I was the black hole. Like I was just like gravity pulling everything towards me, sucking in it and just killing everything in its path. Like I was just empty and hopeless. I mean, it was, it was, it's a dark part of my story, but that's my story. And I remember that. What are the first couple chapters of your story? That is important. And the gospel reminds us who we were. Now for Paul, who he was, was he was out there killing men and women Christians. And you might say, well, okay, my first couple chapters aren't that dark. I was actually a pretty good kid. No, you weren't. You absolutely were not. <laughs> Apart from Christ, you were dead in your sins. Like that's, that's scripture right there. We may, be, we may have acted alive, but apart from me, you can do nothing. We need to understand that. And it's not until we experience Christ that we actually have this change happen. Paul can, can maybe relate with you in Philippians 3, verse 5 through 6. He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And so Paul was saying, I was living what looked like a perfect life. But then he says, and it's an expletive we can't use here in church. He says, I count it all rubbish. It was all trash. It was fake that I might gain Christ and be found in him. And so no matter your story, we need to hear that apart from Christ, that apart from Christ, that we are empty. I need to see how far gone I was. Or if you were maybe saved at a young age, you need to see how far gone you could have been. And we can all see that. That left to our, 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 ourselves without Christ, I know where I'd be. The past is important because once the gospel reminds us where we came from, then it can define who we are. Verse 6, Paul says, And as I was on my way to go murder some people self-righteously and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting the gospel defines Paul because he saw how utterly far from God he was. He didn't see himself as just a nice guy. 
He was on his way to kill Christians. And what's so powerful about this passage, and that should be an encouragement to many of us who are suffering right now, is that Jesus so identifies with us that he says, when someone persecutes Christians, they are persecuting me. These are image bearers. They have the Imago Dei on them. And more than that, they have the Holy Spirit in them. And so when you persecute them, you are persecuting the Holy Spirit. You are attacking the Holy Spirit. You're attacking those who are in union with me. I associate myself with them so much that these people, that they, those who would be joined by faith with me, with the Holy Spirit, that whatever you do to them, you have done to me. And so we need to see that our brother, George Floyd, was a brother in Christ. He was known as, as a man of peace in Houston's third ward before he moved up to Minnesota. That, that he, he would allow churches to come into the area, church plants, to, to gain a hearing, to be able to spread the good news there in Houston, right in our backyard. And he was persecuted. And Jesus says, as you persecute him, you persecute me. This is our hope if you're in fear right now, that Jesus so identifies with us that he says, if you're persecuting them, you're persecuting me because I identify with you. And this is just the radical nature of the gospel and the radical nature of what Paul is doing right here. Like he's telling the crowd, and you can just think of how they're wincing and getting angry as he's telling them about Jesus. Like just imagine them going, mm, like just like, like swallowing that anger and then having those distrusting eyes on him at this moment of, as he recounts how Jesus gripped him. I mean, that's the setting of his testimony that we find so beautiful. Why does he share this story here? Because it defines him. It defines him. He was on his way to kill these people. He wasn't on his way to seek out some spiritual truth. He was, he was on his way to murder. So you can't say Paul just needed some, something in his life, that, that Christianity was just a crutch for him. <laughs> Jesus overwhelmed him. He didn't try to persuade Paul. He didn't say, Paul, would you like for me to, to be in your life? Hey, is it okay if I blind you? No, he just blinds him. And Paul is trying to say right here, I I'm not wanting to ask you permission. I want Jesus to blind you all right here. I want you to be reached. He went, while I'm still sinner, Christ died for me. While we were still sinning, Christ dies for us. He doesn't ask our permission. He comes in. And how does that matter? Because Paul is trying to tell these people that Jesus interrupted my plans and I pray he's interrupting your plans. I don't deserve his grace. In fact, I should probably have been taken more than just my eyesight away. God should have, should have killed me right then, but in his rich mercy, he kept me alive. He kept me alive. He saved me, the chief of sinners. And so that gospel that reminds me who I was, that defines me here today, is the one that's also going to drive me, and it's going to drive my mission. This is why I preach the good news of grace to the Gentiles, because of Jesus Christ, that he's explicitly commanded me to do so. And he's revealed to me that my status in the kingdom is not because of my skin color or it's not because I served under some great leader. It's because of grace alone. And even I pushed against that and Jesus said, don't call unclean what I have made clean. 
my story, the one that starts with me fighting Jews and Gentile Christians, is now about the drive to reach Gentiles. And so Paul is blinded by this light for a couple of days, and he's led to this man Ananias' house, whom the text says is a devout Jew. And Ananias says in verse 15, You will be a witness for him, Jesus, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. That would have made the crowd furious as Paul is saying that out loud. Why would a Pharisee need to be baptized? Like, for a Gentile to come into the faith, they would be baptized. But for a Pharisee, no way. Like, what do they have to, what, what do they have to wash away? That baptism is the sign of, of us washing our sins away. It's, a, it's an outward sign of an inward reality. And what he is saying here that he needs to be baptized is that he is just as unclean as these Gentiles. The gospel is this great equalizer. It's this great equalizer because he saw how much he needed cleansing. He is driven to bring the message to the Gentiles. The, the Greek word there is the ethnos, the nations. Jesus calls him to be a minister of this new multicolor, multi-everything church. And then Jesus says very explicitly in verse 21, Go, for I will send you away to the Gentiles. And so his answer to preaching about racial reconciliation was his own testimony. He roots what he is doing in who he is. And I just think that is stunning. He is saying, I believe the gospel is for Jew and for Gentile so deeply that I have tied it to my identity, that it is, it, I'm willing to die with it. You cannot take that away from me. We have a real opportunity here as a multicultural church. I mean, our country feels like it's in a powder keg ready to explode, right? I mean, some people are wondering why, though. Why are these events important? And, and what, that's where I think having a multicultural church is, is a crucial element for us. To have a multicultural gospel is crucial here. We get, to, we get to see how different events affect different people in different ways. And so when I saw the video of George Floyd this past week, it made me angry. It made me disgusted. I just wanted to cry. But someone else saw the footage and they said, this is, a, this is an isolated incident. And yet others have seen this footage and it brings fear and it brings vicarious and vicious trauma. And we need to be able to see how this reacts to different people differently. And it's in this type of church that when we are bound together with brothers and sisters who are different than us, we are able to see this, that we need each other, that we need to grow in this area. Why do we love others? Because we've been loved. Deep down, this is tied to our identity. Like, we hold this to be essential. Like, am I saved by grace alone? How would you answer that? Am I saved by grace alone? I hope the answer is yes, amen. Do I have anything over anyone else? Do I have any reason to feel superior? Absolutely not. 
This is the vertical love of the gospel. The vertical meaning God to you downwards. That vertical translates though to horizontal from me to each other, to me to my brothers and sisters. Paul tells them that he's been accepted and forgiven and now God is doing that, that same grace that he's given to us. He's, he's pushing me outward to Jew and Gentile alike. And so how do you love someone different than you? How do you care for people who are not like you? Look at how Jesus has loved you. All throughout the book of Acts, Paul is bringing this gospel as a cross-cultural advocate to those who don't know Jesus. And he is uniting the church. He's, he's, he's uniting the church to be a place where those who may have nothing else in common have this in common. Like we have this in common it is the great equalizer. But the grace of the Lord Jesus brings us to, to say we have something more common than it's the the deepest common denominator we ever have. Like that is our deepest identity right there. That's what unites us. The message of reconciliation is radical, it is explosive, and it is uniting. It is uniting us to God, but it's uniting us to each other. We are building bridges when we step into these conversations. And so when, what does this mean for you? I would say before we think about what you need to do, go back to who you are. Who are you? Are you a sinner saved by grace and grace alone? Is that something that you hold deep in your bones? If not, then I would say repent and be baptized. Like that, that, is, that is what the gospel would say for us, to repent and be baptized. And true forgiveness is available. And a fresh start is available. And so begin there. And now as you think about that, if that's who I am, now I can begin to think of how can we mobilize our privileges to love and care for each other? Because Paul could have easily been killed earlier, right? But he, he knew how to speak Greek and he knew how to speak Hebrew and he had some secret arm gesture that we just don't understand. But what if he didn't? He'd be dead. And so what can we use that it's part of our story I mean, think back of your story. What can God use that's, that's unique to you, a part of your story, to love and care for people? Does, does, does God love you enough to... Do you see that God loves you enough that, to push you out to love people that are different than you? Or does our love only go to people that are like us? Do we only love people in our comfort zone? Does our love push us into uncharted territories? Does it push us outward to the Gentiles, to the nations, to give justice, to share hope, to tell the good news, to be cross-cultural advocates? I want us to see that the gospel should remind us of who we were, but that's not our whole story, right? Your past is, is your past, but it's not all there is, but reminds us who we were. But I want the gospel also to define us, to be able to see that this is what God has done for us. This is the most important thing ever like, this is the most important thing that I am saved by grace alone. And lastly, that that would drive us out to be allies. That would drive us out to be allies, to be advocates, and to be ambassadors for God's kingdom to every single person who's been created in the Imago Dei. This is the message Paul is defending. And I pray we would, we would defend it, and that would be so deep in our bones that we would be willing to go to death for it. Let's pray.